Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Jeffrey Katzenberg is something of a legend in Hollywood. He helped turn Disney around in the 80s and 90s by overseeing huge hits like The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. He also co-founded DreamWorks, the animation studio behind Shrek and Kung Fu Panda. Like much of Hollywood, Katzenberg dabbled in tech. But in 2018, he made a giant leap when he and former eBay CEO Meg Whitman founded a short-form video subscription platform they later named Quibi. The idea? Videos with the production value of Netflix, but the length of YouTube. Quibi raised a whopping $1.75 billion and launched in April of 2020. Six months later, they announced the platform would be shutting down. Quibi was a flop, but Katzenberg has doubled down on tech. His holding company, Wonderco, has invested in a range of techie businesses, from digital security companies like Aura to sites like The Infatuation, which, by the way, just sold to J.P. Morgan. So I wanted to catch up with Katzenberg to see what he learned from the face planet Quibi, where he sees the battle between TV and TikTok going, and why he's given up Hollywood for the land of the techies. Hi, Jeffrey. Thanks for being here. Kara, great to see you. When we last met, you were very bullish on Quibi. Um, I was less so because I was worried about YouTube and you were going to spend a lot of money. And I thought a lot of these young influencers did not do that and did very well. So I want you to talk about the experience of this company, how you are looking at it now since you closed down, uh, sure. which was about yeah, yeah. Eight, a while ago. Yeah, almost a year, yeah. actually. So here's, you know, obviously mixed feelings. First is I have one of real pride. I felt what we built at Quibi actually realized um, in many respects the best of what I imagined when we set out. I thought the idea of being able to tell movies and chapters was a big idea, a sort of next evolution of narrative. And I felt like the creative community more than delivered on my expectations around that. So, you know, as we would look back and say, why did this not work? I would say, clearly, we did not have product market fit. You might have felt that way from day one because of uh, certain competitive enterprises that were out there in the world, be it YouTube or Instagram or TikTok, or I never felt we were competing with those platforms? And did we not have product market fit, Kara, because of the product? Or did we not have product market fit because the market radically, radically changed three weeks after we launched? Mm -hmm. um, You're talking about the pandemic. Yes. I mean, the one thing which, you know, you heard me talk about ad nauseum is, is that this was designed for on the go, in between moments on your phone. 
at the very moment in time that we stopped being on the go and having those in-between moments on our phone. We were in front of our TV sets on our couch, and we were now suddenly being compared to things you know, like Netflix and Disney and HBO, and for sure we could not compete with them. So the failure of Quibi is something that is, uh, for me, was and is a humbling experience, as I think any startup for any entrepreneurs. Mine just had a couple of extra zeros on the end of it. Right. So you raised a total of $1.75 billion, um, a lot of zeros, in yeah. fact. So it was bigger and and certainly way more, you know, public. And, and that's okay. The thing that, you know, I think both Meg and I were very aggressive about is the moment that it was clear to us that it did not have product market fit and was not going to succeed, we wanted to shut the business down. And this will come out in, you know, in the coming weeks, but we will have returned many, many, many hundreds of millions of dollars to our investors. Um, you know, I'm proud of the fact that we didn't just run the clock out. Right. But I want to go through a couple of things. You were talking about the pandemic. You look at something like TikTok, which has never been bigger, and they use the pandemic to have a huge jump in users, et cetera, all phone-based pretty much, um, YouTube, all the others really did grow. What do you think the difference was? A lot of people took advantage of the pandemic, in fact, including streamers and things like that. Yeah. Uh, listen, I'm in the end, I'm, you know, uh, the fact that we were a subscription service, the fact that we were a different type of content, the fact that we were a new user experience. I mean, everything about it was swimming against the tide. And, you know, the good fortune of the YouTubes and TikToks, and by the way, Disney and Netflix, you know, these are well-established consumer platforms with consumer loyalty, and it simply exploded I think the fact that, you know, we had not established ourselves, um, but it's also possible that maybe in the end, that type of content and that type of subscription service, people don't have value for it. You know, now I will say, we'll see in the long run here, but Roku, which bought the library and has been running it now since May of this year, has actually been having some success with it. One of the things I, I recall we discussed was, uh, you know, how sort of haphazard the, the spending is by creators. They sort of paint their own fences in, in a YouTube environment, even in a TikTok environment, even though they look pretty good. It's a very on the cheap kind of thing. You were talking about beautiful things. Some of these episodes were, you know, $20,000 to $120,000 a minute. You know, the streamers certainly are spending money, $25 million on an episode on Marvel shows like Hawkeye and WandaVision for Disney+. Plus. Talk about that idea to make it beautiful on a medium that doesn't necessarily value that. I think about that with journalism a lot. When big media companies start these big online things, I'm like, you don't need to spend that much money. You don't need the kind of budgets that are typical. Well, with the power of hindsight, you would say you're correct. <laughs> with the premise. No, but I, mean, I want to know why the, you wanted to stick with that. Because I think it was an interesting because idea. I, I, because I wanted consumers to have a quality two-hour movie that they could watch in chapters that were six to eight or 10 minutes in length. And those movies that we made, whether it was the Kevin Hart movie or Anton Fuqua's movie or The Fugitive or whatever, they delivered on the promise of that character. People made really, really good shows and they were well-reviewed and they were critically acclaimed and they won Emmy Awards. And I mean, we did, I, I would say we, they, 
the talent delivered on what we set out to do and on the economics of what we set out for them. But the consumer didn't value it. The celebrity aspect was interesting because you did have a lot of celebrities. And I know, um, I, I'm not sure what to think about celebrity on these, <laughs> these. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't work quite the same way. It doesn't have the same magic that it does, even if it's on a Netflix or a streaming platform. Well, yes, it does. I would, I would disagree with that. I think what you see today is, is actually quite the opposite of that. When, you know, when, when you see Kevin Hart or Ryan Reynolds or Meryl Streep or Reese Witherspoon, I mean, they're giant stars on these platforms and they are attracting audiences. And those streamers are paying more for that talent today than ever before. So they're not paying for it if it's not a value mm-hmm. for them. Well, when you think about TikTok, for example, though, they create celebrities of normal people, right? Those become stars on, on, in the mobile medium. But I don't, that- think th- I, don't, I, I don't think they're the same. I think they're really, I, I think it's, it's like comparing apples and submarines. They, they mm-hmm. just don't have anything <laughs> in common with one another. I think that the things that are being created today in a creator community is just a very, very, very different type of content, a very different type of consumption. And people are, you know, it's they're not making a choice of one or the other. You know, the, all boats are rising here. More people are watching more content today than ever before. And the success of, you know, TikTok has not in any shape or form has it slowed down the growth of YouTube. Think about it. I read some story the other day that they're almost as big as YouTube. Fine, but it hasn't been at YouTube's expense. Right, right. So all boats are rising, ex- except for the Quibi boat. <laughs> yeah, the Quibi boat sunk. The Quibi boat or sunk, right. Of, <laughs> yeah, the Quibi boat is the only one that didn't work in that, so. <laughs> is there anything you would have done differently? Um, well, yeah. If I knew then what I know now, we would not have launched in April. And by the way, I still wouldn't have launched now because <laughs> I don't think that the world yet has returned to whatever new normal is going to look like in which this was designed. But, you know, could we have actually shut down and sat in place, you know, in an empty building for two years? I don't know how that would have worked either. All right, that gets us into the idea of the future of content. You've got such a long and, and storied reputation in Hollywood, but things have changed radically. How do you look at the landscape of Hollywood right now I'd love you to give us sort of a a high-level view of where you think the future of content is. Well, you know, I I was a terrible student in school, but I was pretty good at math. And the one thing I always remembered was, uh, remember a teacher explaining that when you had a complicated equation and you changed more than one factor to sort of see where the variables were, if you changed multiple factors you actually couldn't get to a reliable, predictable outcome. And right now, today, I think Hollywood is that equation in that there are too many unknowns right now. I think for anybody to sit here today and think that they have a crystal ball and they can see what this looks like three years from now or five years from now, I'm certainly not capable of doing it. But I don't know that anybody is because, you know, you think about, the movie theater experience. What what is that going to look like? And I have to say, any presumption that you make about that today, you're likely wrong. Is it going to return to what it was before? No. Uh, Is it going to be a small niche business that has 
questionable value in the sort of stream of uh, value creation for movies, I wouldn't count it out at all. You know what I think about it. I get in arguments with all of Hollywood. I'm like, you're done. Yeah, but, <laughs> Lie down. But you look at what happened with Shang-Chi, which... Big movie. Uh, you know, Different. But go okay, ahead. Okay, but, you know, we've never seen business on a Labor Day weekend ever. In the height of the movie business, there's never been a Labor Day weekend where you had a movie go out and do, you know, well over $90 million. So there's a pulse, <laughs> you know? So we can look at that as sort of the quote event content and, you know, the franchise business. And that certainly is some indication. The question is, all these amazing movies that I've been reading about at Telluride and Venice and now at the Toronto Film Festival, are they going to have a place in the movie theater business? Is there going to be a value for them there? My bet is, yes, there will be value. Is it going to be as it was in the past? I don't think so. We had 40,000 screens in the U.S. We were over-screened for the old movie business. For the new movie business, for sure we are over-screened. And I think that exhibition for way too long operated under a negative covenant with its audience, which is the reason you're going to come see a movie in a movie theater is because you cannot see it somewhere else. I don't believe that that's the way to succeed with your customer. Why that treatment of the customer? Why that, I wouldn't say abusive with the, how much it costs, the popcorn's terrible, the, the, the theater screen experience is terrible, the sound is terrible, the seats are terrible. Well, it's not, I mean, it's un, why? I think it's unfair to say across the board that's what the experience is because it's just not. There are many actually quality theaters and, um, you know, they... You sure, know, if you live in Los Angeles or New York, yeah. Well, and other places too. But I think the point is, I believe the movie theater experience is in flux. And consumers are going to find a new relationship with that movie theater. And I don't know that you can today sit here and predict what that is going to be. Okay, but streaming, all these studios, now you used to work uh, in all these studios, they're now calling themselves streaming companies. Um, so I do want to spend some time talking about this idea of the new Hollywood and the streaming wars and the increasingly tight relationship between Hollywood and Silicon Valley. I recently spoke with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He was pretty blunt about the fact that Silicon Valley now owns Hollywood. I think probably that's a little far. Um, he said pretty much there's no more Hollywood other than Disney. Talk a little bit about the power struggle between tech and Hollywood and where you see streaming going because it's been embraced by, you know, Warners and the Disneys of the world right now. Yeah, I I guess I don't have the same perspective as Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think that what you have seen is, I think there is a growing appreciation of the power of these platforms that, you know, Hollywood woke up to late, but did wake up to it. And certainly you got to give Reed Hastings a lot of the credit of sort of leading the charge in that and opening people's eyes. But I think likewise, you've actually seen the Silicon Valley tech platform, Northern California, I think has a much greater appreciation for Hollywood and the value and importance that they bring to the equation. And so to say that one has, you know, acquiesced to or 
capitulated to or become dominated by the other. I don't see that. Okay. So when you look at the idea of where things have moved to streaming, this is obviously the story of this year, this 2020 and 2021. Uh, Warner made the big move of streaming when it decided to release due to the pandemic. It's 2021 movies and theaters and HBO Max, which it was trying to push very heavily. It had been way behind Netflix and others, including Disney. The Warner Media CEO, Jason Kylar, which will be changing, got a lot of heat from Hollywood. What did you think of his decision when he made it at the time? Well, um, I think it's not what he did, it's how he did it. I think that was really more the issue. And I think that that came out of a a lack of experience of just knowing um, if you're going to change the rules of the game, you got to go talk to the players about it before the fact, not after the fact. But here's the thing. If you look today back, you would say, well, he did actually the right thing. You know, I, I read the other day Patty Jenkins' comments. She said, listen. This is the Wonder Woman director. Yeah. Was that the optimal way that I created design and made my movie to be shown that way? No, it was not. Under the circumstances, was there a better alternative? No, there was not. And so I actually think that Jason did the right thing. And it was the right strategy. And I think he inadvertently, not knowing how to deal with the talent, you know, tripped on his way up onto the stage. You could make a different art. I'm not going to play devil's advocate here, but I think you asked for forgiveness, not permission, because they probably never would have happened if he had consulted them. I don't agree. Really? No, not, no. I'm going to put 40 years of saying, I've had to change the rules of the game before, I have always found that when, you know, you are forthcoming with people, you know, when you put the cards out on the table and you treat them as partners uh, in, in this, I have not found that to be the case. I think a lot of these companies were waiting for a Jason Kylar to do what they kind of want to do, which was refigure the economics around all this. Obviously, it was Scarlett Johansson in Disney. It decided to release Black Widow on Disney Plus when the movie was still in theaters. She's alleging that this cheated her out of pay, essentially. Can you talk overall about the changing economics? What are they thinking inside? You've got to know. I think you do know what they're thinking. Well, I don't. I mean, honestly, I just have to say, you know, um, I can step back and be an observer of it, but I've been out of their business for five years and I think it's unfair, if not inappropriate, for me to be critiquing uh, what these, you know... I don't want to critique, but this is a changing economic situation. So how does this happen? Disney wants to pay a certain way. How do you figure that out? They do. I mean, what they've done is they've made a decision for where the value is, what it's worth to pay for content, what is, you know, every day you read stories about Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds and someone else doing a movie. And every day there are streaming platforms that are commissioning and or making uh, or just buying after the fact big movies with talent involved in it. And as part of that, they're negotiating what their compensation is for it. And They are data-driven companies. They are using their data to make those assessments. And so, obviously, there's huge value to them. You know, why does Amazon go and buy the Eddie Murphy Coming to America, you know, movie? So, the value and the pay to talent is being adjusted 
and recalibrated on both sides of the equation. And so we're in that moment. That's why I said to you when we started this conversation, which is it's all in flux right now. And we haven't found what the new normal is is going to be and therefore where the value is going to fall on this. But clearly streaming platforms are seeing value in stars. So I think that the adjustment of what did it mean to make a movie? What did it mean to have an uncapped upside to that movie? but also the downside risk that it failed. Like that's what drove Hollywood for many, many, many decades. But streaming, I think, is here to stay. I do think consumers 100%. like it. They like delivery better than they like going to stores. They like streaming with their big TVs at home a lot better than they do. Now, certain movie theaters, I'll go see Bond in the movie theater. I won't see almost anything else. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Warner Media CEO Jason Kyler, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Jeffrey Katzenberg after the break. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look. Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So when you think about these streaming wars, you have HBO Max, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime Video, Peacock, Apple TV Plus, Netflix, the merger of Discovery and Warner. Do you have any that you think, who is the most powerful company in Hollywood right now from your perspective? How are we defining power? All right. In terms of who will in five years have, these these tech companies have endless money from other things that they can continue to spend. I do think they overspend for a reason uh, to get market share. They've done it in the past with their own businesses. Which one are you most impressed by of these different companies? I don't want to. I don't want. I don't want to get in the middle of that car. What I will say to you is, is that you you have almost everybody you said will be here five years from now. There may be some consolidation between you rattled off six or seven players. You have different 
companies that have different agendas in terms of what they're doing, but that doesn't negate the value of what others are doing. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, Apple is in a very, very different business than Disney is or Warner. Like they're in a different business. You know, they are a multi-trillion dollar company that makes hardware and it seems what they are doing in the content business is to increase the value, importance, and usability of that hardware. They're selling phones. Yes, but but giving you even more value for the phone that they're selling you. And it's not a bad agenda. It's just they're using content for a, a different outcome than Disney is using content. What about a Discovery Warner, a pure entertainment company? Can that exist in a powerful way going forward? Yeah, but here's the thing, which is where I, I would, I, so I'll say a couple of things. One, David Zaslav is actually a great executive. Um, do you play poker? I do. Okay. So now you realize there are two things in poker. I mean, there are many things, but there are two things that are really essential. How do you get the full value out of a great hand? Now, that may sound like no big deal, but if everybody knows you have a good hand, you ain't going to get anybody's money, <laughs> okay? So playing a great hand well actually takes a lot of skill. It's not as easy and obvious as it seems. Interestingly, playing a not great hand and getting a lot out of it is also a huge skill. David is an expert at getting great value out of hands that seemed not to be great at the time. He did it when he was at NBC. He did it when he got Discovery. Then he put Discovery and scripts together. Everybody said that, well, I don't really know those two things. What do they add up to? And so I bet on him. Can you just be a content company then? There's just a, a presumption that everybody has to succeed in the same way, on the, at the same level and at the same scale. And that's just not the way it is. And so you can actually have stars, a little gem of a company, off in its niche business, belongs to a little company called Lionsgate. It's doing actually really well. While these behemoths are out there, you know, just operating at a whole different level and a whole different scale. And you could say the same thing about Showtime. So all I'm saying is, is that when you look at multi-hundred million subscriber businesses, yes, there's going to be a small tier of people that play in that stratosphere. But to think that it's everything or nothing, that you're either one of those. No, that's true. I think these tech companies eat people because that's their DNA and they <laughs> continue to eat and no one's stopping them. And so that may be true, but they will continue to eat and they will spend money to do it. They will do anything because that's what they do. It's They're like the Borg. They just eat. They eat well, everything. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm I, you know. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about your future. Do you wish you had created one of these branded commerce slash content companies? Are you going, oh, I really? No, I actually wish I had stuck to my thesis of when I sold DreamWorks five years ago. Um, and that at the time, I said, listen, I have been involved with uh, over 400 movies, live action movies, 41 animated movies, 80 television plus television shows, five Broadway plays. I was done. And doing one more of any of those was 
not of interest. And so what I did is I said, if I were 22 years old today, what would I be doing? And if I were 22 years old today, five years ago, I would be in digital technology because that's where the most interesting, most innovative, most creative talent is. It is the thing of the future. And so I decided to ignore what I see when I look in the mirror and be 22 years old. This is Wonderco, your holding company. Yes, at Wonderco. So, so let me th- say what you have at Wonderco or a digital security company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have some other privacy-focused companies like 1Password and Pango. Digital security is not something I would put together with you at any point. Why? Well, you know, I spent most of my life trying to put myself in the position of consumers, customers, and thinking about needs. And so consumers today are spending almost every moment of their day on these devices. And as a result, their personal data and safety and security has actually never been more vulnerable. And, you know, this is not about a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is privacy. Yeah. This is not about privacy. This is actually about safety and security. And consumers today spend $21 billion a year on alarm systems and ring doorbells and nest cameras and all these things to protect the basically the front door of their homes. Meanwhile, they've left the windows open. But if I broke into your phone, the damage I could do to you is extraordinary. And so when we looked at that marketplace, and I give all the credit of this to Sujay and Shen Li, so I'm, I'm, I'm following the leaders here in this, and this was their observation and their idea. It's not as though there were no solutions to this problem. It's there were so many of them. And if you're a digital idiot like me, I don't actually know what do I need? Do I need identity protection? Do I need a secure VPN? Do I need antiviral? Uh, Do I need credit card masking? So what we did is we went and we bought seven best-in-class companies, integrated them together, built a whole suite of products on top of that, got a phenomenal entrepreneur businessman with one of our companies, this guy, uh, Hari Ravichardran, who is just killing it as a CEO, and have sort of built this product and rolled it out. We rolled out a new consumer version of it beginning of the summer. And I don't know how you have a device today and don't have what Aura has to offer you on that. It's, you know... It's so funny to hear you talk. I mean, I'm not laughing at you because I think you're quite uh, intent, but it's like the idea of like, Clooney, I'm not going to get back to you. I'm dealing with, uh, you know, antivirals on the phone, if you don't mind. Well, no, it's actually Clooney. Do you have this on your phone? Because if you don't, you should. (laughs) (laughs) And then when you put it on your phone, I need you to talk to other people about it. (laughs) I see. Okay. So you can hire me. So so this is security. Is there any other areas in tech? So not content. You're not going to invest in content. No, 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 no. We've, I mean, there are, I think there are a number of lanes that we're finding ourselves in. I think our biggest bets have been around uh, security products that we've we've been uh, building out. We're doing a bunch of stuff in fintech. We've had a number of investments in um, healthcare. You know, here's the thing about it: if you look at the last ten years, the impact of digital technology on our lives it's actually unimaginable how it has actually impacted and changed literally every facet of our lives. If you look at fint, if you look at the digital technology for the next 10 years, 
the impact will be 10x. And so every day, I get to meet some young entrepreneur. And interestingly, they are between 18 and 25 years old who has that dream. When 40 years ago, the people that I met that were 18 to 25 years old, they wanted to be filmmakers. They wanted to be storytellers. Today, they actually want to be digital entrepreneurs. And then, frankly, the idea of Wonderco is to be the founder behind the founder. So, so you will not be making content movies. You don't see yourself doing that. I'd heard you've been like around town taking meetings. No, you you have not heard me around town. They, they, you know, other than my friends. So you're talking to techies. Yeah, yeah. So if you just look at my breakfast, lunches, and dinners, it's it's with entrepreneurs. It's not with entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. You've had it with Hollywood. Jeff Katzenberg has had it with Hollywood. So um, let me ask you then, because a lot of people are talking politics right now with the recall effort in California. I know you've supported Gavin Newsom. You co-chaired a fundraiser for him. What advice do you have for Newsom? I think that you cannot pick a governor in the United States today and have the people of that state stand up, applaud and cheer and say, I think they've done a great job. Literally, not one single one. Why? Because what they have had to face over these last 18 months is unimaginable and not solely in their control. And so I would not sit here today and say, oh, I think Gavin's done a fantastic job without adding to it of saying, well, I think he's actually done a decent job given the circumstances. Okay. So now there are things that, I think will be critically important for him to do. Because remember, he's up for re-election in 14 months. That's how crazy this is. We just threw away $200 million in this nonsensical, idiotic recall. And I resent it because I'd like to see that go to homelessness right now, which is, you know, the thing that I'm working hardest on. And, you know, so it's just a complete waste of money. Do you have political aspirations? Someone said you want to run for mayor of Los Angeles. No, not a chance. No? no, I have a candidate that I'm very, very excited about who is going to run for mayor, and they will declare themselves in about two weeks or three weeks. And That's not Meg Whitman, is it? She ran for governor, you know. No, <laughs> I have spent the last number of months out aggressively recruiting somebody who I think when they declare this, and people will go, that's what this city needs at this moment in this time. So I think we have somebody and this city- You want to be an ambassador? Your name was also no, ambassadorial. No, no, zero interest. No, no. that stuff doesn't, no. I, I, I like finding great candidates, helping them get elected and then get out of the way and let them go do their job. So how are behind the scenes? That's what you're going for. Let me ask you a final question though. If they came to you and said, would you like to be CEO of TikTok? Would you say yes? No. 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 I, I I am having so much fun doing what I'm doing right now today. Again, you you know, the interesting thing about it is, is that my social relationships and my friendships are all in the media business. And my interest in my business today is 100% into a completely new place with new people and, you know, new relationships and friendships and stuff. And so that's sort of the you yeah, know, that's a good mix. You don't want to socialize with the tech people. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> they're no fun. They'll talk to you about their diet endlessly. Stick with the media people. They're a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much. Adios. Bye-bye. 
production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Caitlin O'Keefe. Edited by Naima Raza, with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcast. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you in 10-minute installments featuring Meryl Streep and Kevin Hart, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.